Well, good morning, everybody. We have a lot to cover today, so if you are a note taker, get your device out, get your note taking uh, stuff out. There is a lot to go over today. Uh, over the next seven weeks, we are going to be jumping into uh, school, guys. We're just jumping into school. Uh, last week was a lot of uh, fireball preaching, talking about the idea of the state of the culture that we live in, uh, and beginning this week for the next seven weeks, there is a lot of brain stretching that will go on, <laughs> okay? And, uh, and I am confident, I'm confident in a lot of things in life, but I am definitely confident I'm going to make somebody mad this series. So anyway, so if you would uh, just kind of open your brain and your heart to what we're going to be talking about, seven things that Christians should know about their Bibles. That's what we're, that's what we're jumping into today. The series draws from a couple of really great books, and I recommend each and every one of these books. I'm going to put the books on the screen and share with you what they are. Uh, the first is the, the book that the title of the series is derived from. We're not using everything exactly in that book, but we are definitely using that book. It's a, it's a fascinating read. So that book is Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible by Michael F. Byrd. The second one is How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee. If there is any of these books that you buy, that is the book you want to buy. That book right there, not seven things. Mark's going to get all happy because he's been reading that one. If you buy any book, buy How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee. That book will teach you more about how to rightly divide God's word than any book you'll ever know. It's unbelievable. It's a very good book. I can't recommend it enough. The next one is by Dr. Ryan M. Reeves, and the book is called Know How We Got Our Bible. If you are interested in the transition of the Hebrew and Greek texts all the way up through all the myriad of translations throughout history, history in and through the King James and all the way to modern uh, translations, uh, this book is fascinating for you. He is a historian of uh, a high, high caliber and really can explain the, the, the history of the Bible in an amazing way. The next one is uh, a commentary, and you don't have to buy all 12 volumes of this commentary, <laughs> but I would recommend you do. Anyway, so, but if you don't buy all 12 uh, editions of this commentary or, or volumes of this commentary, it's called the Expositor's Bible Commentary, and volume one has some really amazing ground rules for how to interpret the Bible. And the article in, uh, in kind of highlight here, or what we're zooming in on, is uh, the article on textual criticism by Bruce Waltke. And he just really explores this in an amazing way. So, seven things that I, I want you to know that every Christian should know about their Bibles. Why does a series matter? Michael F. Byrd actually puts it in the best way possible in his book. So here's what he says. He says, it is one thing to read the Bible. It is quite another thing to understand it. And it is still another thing to use it responsibly. That's amazing, Right? It is one thing to be able to read your Bible, which <laughs> half the battle is getting people to just read their Bibles, right? It's one thing to read it. It's another thing to understand it, which feels like you're decoding something uh, from, from spy work somewhere. And then it's another thing altogether to be able to use it responsibly. And I'll talk throughout the series about what it means to use the Bible responsibly. It's not just that you, you know, uh, it's not just that you read things in context, there is way more to using the Bible responsibly. Last week, we talked about the rather shocking condition of the American church, and uh, there are reasons that come along with the statistics of a declining faith in America. And it doesn't matter which way you view it, whether you view a once large church that is reduced to nothing, or whether you view it as uh, the real church is finally just showing its true colors. The truth is that, we are, that we're in a bad place. Because on one end, either the church is experiencing a great apostasy in America, or on the other sense, the church has never done its job, which is a very sad indictment, right? So it's not ever gone and, and shared the gospel. So regardless of how you interpret it, one reason I find uh, particularly important to this series is uh, centered around skepticism and doubt. When asked why they had abandoned their faith, and more specifically the church, millennials responded with a rather unified answer. 
that response is the church isn't answering their questions concerning doubt. The church isn't answering their questions concerning doubt. Now, how does this reason fit in with our series? Simply put, reading, understanding, and using the Bible responsibly is critical to answering these questions and the doubts that the world has. It's my view that uh, many of the questions being asked can't, Uh, can't be answered because the church either doesn't understand their Bible or because they don't use it responsibly. So let me speak a little bit to that responsible use of the Bible here. One is reading things in context. Do you know you should do that? Yes, context is king. You should read things in context. However, it is also important that you use the Bible for what it's supposed to be used for and you stop using it for things it was never intended to be used for. The tongue-in-cheek joke that I've shared for many, many years is that the Bible will not help you put together your Ikea furniture, right? It's, it's, you know, reductio ad absurdum because what I want you to realize is that it's not intended to do those things. There are a lot of things the Bible is not intended to do, and it's always used for them in modern conversations. And because it's used in a wrong sense... The real trouble is skeptics go, that's just, that's just a fairy tale. That's hogwash. We don't believe it, right? And so what happens is Christians have to go back to their Bibles and actually use it for what it's intended to be used for. We're going to talk about that again throughout this entire series. This lack on our part, church, leaves people with more questions than when they started, Okay? They go, oh, cool, so you believe in fairy tales and your explanation of all of reality is a fairy tale too. Way to go. I'm going to go ahead and believe whatever I want to believe. And that is a serious problem. So the first takeaway, if you're a note taker, please write this down. I want, you to, I want you to go away knowing this. We need to read, understand, and use our Bibles responsibly if we are to stem the tide of apostasy and answer the skeptic's questions. We must read, understand, and use our Bibles responsibly if we are to stem the tide of apostasy and answer the skeptics' questions. And remember what I shared last week. The skeptics in question, the skeptics in view here, are not the atheist who just disagrees with you and wants to pick fights with you online. I'm talking about the millennials within the church that say, no thanks. We're going to walk away from this because you aren't answering our questions. I'm talking about skeptics that live in your own home, okay? So please understand, you need to read, understand, and use the Bible responsibly to work through that. So this week, week one of our series, we're going to learn how the Bible came to be. And I need to take a deep breath because there is so much that I'm about to share. Over the next six weeks, we're going to delve into a myriad of topics, but all of them are intended to help us understand the Bible and use it responsibly. So we're going to break this first idea down, how, to, how the Bible came to be, in three different parts. The first is translation, the second is canon, and the third is inspiration. I'm just listing those out in numbers so that you can kind of get them. Translation, canon, and inspiration. But I do want to bookend this whole conversation uh, with uh, the talk of inspiration. First, we're going to deal with practical matters of inspiration. Then, at the end, we'll introduce ourselves to the spiritual matters of inspiration. And this is going to set set us up for next week. All that we're doing next week is the, is the spiritual understanding of Scripture. We're going to talk about what inspiration means, what inerrancy means, all of those pieces. So, practical matters of inspiration. This is a quote from Dr. Michael Heiser. I love this, I love this statement. He says, Because the Bible says quite clearly that Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, Christians tend to think of inspiration as some sort of otherworldly event. In the course of many years of teaching biblical studies and chatting with people at church, I've heard some pretty strange explanations for inspiration about how God took control of the hand and the mind of the writer, about how authors slipped into a heaven-sent trance state, or how the Spirit whispered the precise words into their minds, or maybe just impressed them into their consciousness. Frankly, all of that sounds more like an episode of the X-Files than biblical theology, and it absolutely doesn't reflect what the actual Uh, what we actually find in Scripture about inspiration. So if we're going to love inspiration, if we're going to love that, 
and we're going to talk about that in context with the Bible, shouldn't we trust the Bible on what it says about inspiration? The answer is yes. doesn't matter what you think. The answer is yes. Just nod your head with me. Go, yes, sir. That's what I do with my daughters all the time. So the question that we should be asking ourselves here is what, what do we find in Scripture concerning inspiration? How many of you know uh, that the first instance of uh, the first mention of the writing of the Bible occurs in the book of Exodus? How many of you know that? Okay, I'm going to show it to you, and it's a fascinating thing. Here's what happens in Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, and I'll read 8 and 9 for context. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Anybody who knows the story knows as long as Moses' hands are up, they win. If his hands go down, they lose. Okay, so you know the kind of the, the background of, the, of this story. Verse 14 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book. It's the very first instance of the Bible saying that the Bible should be written. <laughs> right? There is nothing in Genesis that says, In the beginning God said, Where's the scribe? It doesn't say that, right? <laughs> there were no people. It was just in the beginning God creates. And that account logically has to be recorded or written down way later. Okay? You guys understand that, right? So it says, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. Now, apart from the idea that God is going to... Uh, blot out Amalek's story, and yet he immortalizes it in Scripture. It's kind of interesting. But apart from that, this idea of how the Bible gets written down seems pretty natural, doesn't it? Right? It seems pretty natural. An event happens. God, yes, that's the supernatural component. God commands Moses to write it down. And Moses becomes a hybrid news reporter slash historian. Okay, And so he begins to write this idea down. It's worth taking a look, though, at why God commands Moses to record this event. It was for the very practical purpose of remembering what God does. It's a testimony. It's a history. It's, it's a remembrance. Because God is always doing things for his people. The first instance of the Bible being recorded in the Bible comes in Exodus. Okay, And the idea is to write it down. The second mention of the writing of the Bible also comes in Exodus just a few chapters later. Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8. Here's what that scripture says. Then Moses came and recounted to all the people the word of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Now what's happening at this moment? Uh, Moses has come down from Sinai or Mount Horeb, depending on... How, you know, whatever dialect you were from, right? So, so Moses comes down from Sinai, and he says, and it says in the scripture that he shares this, and then Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. In this instance, it's curious because it doesn't say God told him to, but he did. Okay, very cool. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and the other half of blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then, here's another instance, he took the book of the covenant, you know that very thing he wrote down, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. <laughs> Famous last words. Anyway, <laughs> and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So apart from blood being sprinkled on people, which is very odd, uh, all of the rest of it seems natural. There's an event that happens, and Moses records that event. Most people, though, have a different view of Scripture uh, than a guy who has an event happen to him, and he wants to record it, and then he wants to share it. Most people have this strange idea that is most likely informed by Exodus 24, verse 12. Here's what Exodus 24, 12 says. Now the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So, 
In this instance, God wrote the book. God wrote the story here. Now that's pretty impressive. I like that idea. That's the way I wish all scripture came. And guess what? This is the only time it came that way. This is absolutely the only time it comes that way. The issue we encounter here is that God supernaturally writing scripture down himself is the exception, not the rule. I know some of you look at this and you're like, okay, I need to take a deep breath. What's happening here? I promise what I'm sharing today is not heresy. I promise. Now, that's usually what a heretic would say. But, anyway, right, I, I do want you to test what I'm saying. It's perfectly fine, right? But it's not heresy. Now, throughout the Bible, what we see is that human authors write the text of Scripture, but not always because God said to. Sometimes they just write it on their own accord. On many occasions, we see an author or a scribe to another author writing what God had said, but we don't see anything that indicates God necessarily commanded it to be written down. There are times when the prophets say, and the word of the Lord came to, and they chose to write it down. Uh, there are times where, again, the author might be a clearly named individual, but many times, and you're going to find this throughout the series, many times the authors are not so clear. Jeremiah is not the one doing the writing in Jeremiah. It's Barak, and it says it in the Bible, right? Paul is not the one doing most of the writing in his letters, as a matter of fact, at the end of Romans, you should read it, it actually identifies a completely different person. One time this person's name is mentioned, and then it's gone, and he actually says, I wrote this book. Okay? Like, wow, there you go. That's just as simple as that. Now, that was common. Scribal writing, that was, that was common. But many times, these people just took it upon themselves to say, God said this, God did this, I want to record it. Okay? Um, mostly we have people writing God-related accounts at various times, in various ways, and for various reasons. Let's turn to Luke 1, and we'll see this plain as day, okay? Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The, these are the words of Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile account, an account, right off the bat, many had undertaken this to compile an account. And this is more than just Matthew, Mark, and John's Gospels. There were all kinds of extra Gospels that were written, okay? Uh, not all of them made it into the canon of Scripture, which we'll get to. Many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by who? Those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. So eyewitness testimony is what they heard and what they wrote down. Now look at what, Paul, what Luke says here. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Luke wrote this portion of scripture because he went into a spiritual trance. No. Luke wrote this portion of scripture because God took control of his pen. No. Luke wrote this scripture because it seemed fitting to him. That is the most unspiritual line I've ever heard in my life, right? What are you doing? That seemed fitting, <laughs> right? I'm just, I'm just going to write this down, right? It doesn't sound spiritual at all. He wrote this orderly account also for a man named Theophilus. Who in the world is that? We don't know. His name just shows up. Hey, dude, I'm writing you an account. I just want you to know this. It, we never, we, again, we never hear of him. No matter what is happening here, this process of writing Scripture is very natural. Give me your undivided attention, church. Listen, it is very natural. And the natural side of inspiration is very, very important. Yes, God's Word is inspired. No, it is not the result of a paranormal event. I know this feels scary for many people, right? But it should neither trouble nor alarm us. The idea of inspiration falls right in line. This idea of human beings being used to write down the Bible falls right in line with the God of the Bible. I can prove it to you. The God of the Bible is the one who continuously blends what is natural with what is spiritual. He did so in the Incarnation. How many of you know that? Anybody who actually rejects the idea that Jesus didn't come in the flesh as a man is known to be committing a heresy. 
This is a problem. Natural, Jesus was fully man. I'm going to share something with you that is just absolutely controversial to people today. I don't know why. It just seems all that fitting in the scripture. It says that when Jesus was 12, he was in the temple and he was, he was impressing the, the people in the temple. Right? You guys know this account. It's when Mary and Joseph lost their baby, right? <laughs> Idiots. Anyway, so, okay, so, so I probably lost my children too. Anyway, so the point is, the point is, he's there and he's doing this. And the scripture says that when they found him and they went back home and he was obedient, it said that he grew in wisdom and understanding. Controversial statement. Jesus, fully human, learned at some point that he was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. He didn't pop out as a baby going, Jesus, right? He didn't pop out of, the, out of the womb walking on water. He didn't do it, church. He didn't do it. He grew in understanding. And here's why he grew in understanding. Because he was steeped in the scriptures. He knew when they were talking of him. And then all of a sudden, God confirms it. I know, controversial. Some of you are like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? Anyway, but here's the point. He learns this and grows in this knowledge and understanding. And then all of a sudden a dove, or what appears to be a dove, alights on him at his, at his baptism. And he knows who he is. This is fascinating to me, right? It's the natural and the spiritual coming together. So God also does this in the giving of the Bible. And guess what? He's also going to do it again when he brings heaven to earth. He is not leaving us in a spiritual great by and by. We're going to have physical bodies, amen? Ones without back pain, amen? Anyway, okay, so anyway, anybody who knows what I'm dealing with knows what I'm dealing with. Anyway, so this sets us apart from other religious people too, church. We didn't receive golden tablets from heaven, neither did Joseph Smith, mind you. But anyway, we don't merely have a collection of man-made stories like Homer in the Iliad or the Odyssey. What we possess is one true and tangible example of God dwelling with his people. Why do you read your Bible? Because it's a tangible example of God dwelling with you. It's not just a mere human book. If it is, throw it away. It's not a download from heaven. Otherwise, we got serious problems with people trying to interpret it. Especially when that's left up to pastors. <laughs> anyway, right? But what we have is a human book that is inspired by God. So the second key takeaway for you today is that inspiration is a meeting of heaven and earth. Inspiration consists of God-breathed ideas and events composed and written down by human instruments. Very, very important. Okay. How did we come to have our Bible? Translation, that's where we're going now. Our Bible came through a lot of work. Can I get an amen? Well, you're about to learn that it came through a lot of work if you didn't know it. For this message, uh, we're going to start at the end product, what you're holding in your hands or looking at on your phones, and we'll work our way back through the process. The English translation that we're using today is a product of a great team effort translators, scholars, and editors working together using sound, I want you to say this with me, hermeneutical, say it, hermeneutical, okay, it just means interpretive, sound interpretive methods in order to create helpful translations for you and I to use every day. It's really important. How many of you like the fact, even if you don't understand your Bible fully, how many of you like the fact that you don't have to learn Greek or Hebrew to read your Bible? You should be happy, right? Otherwise, you're just dark ages. Just, just listen to somebody else tell you, right? So it's helpful what these people have done. The Bible that you have in your hands or on your phones is translated from various critical editions of Greek and Hebrew texts. And the manuscripts that make up these texts have been gradually discovered over time. And they're collected today in museums and in personal collections. But here's where I start to really throw chaos into some people's brains. The manuscripts themselves date from the Middle Ages back only to the 2nd century A.D. Now, there, are, there is one complete manuscript before that, and there are tons of 
particles or shards or pieces, which we'll get to. But please understand, what we have dates from the Middle Ages back to the second century, which means that the oldest texts that we have don't even come from Jesus' day. So let's get a a little perspective on this. The Leningrad Codex. I'm going to put it on the screen. This is the Leningrad Codex. And this is what people use to, to make your Bible. Doesn't look fancy, does it? It's like a photocopy of skin or something, right? Papyrus or something. Leningrad Codex. And this is uh, from 1000 AD, and it's Jonah 1. Okay, so we have these fragments or these pieces that make up this, this span of time. But complete uh, sets, we'll see in just a second, are different. This is the oldest copy, the Leningrad Codex, is the oldest copy of the Old Testament in original Hebrew. And it's from, it's from that section, one section, you saw when it was from, a thousand. This, this codex is from the high Middle Ages, the 11th century, right? And it's... Uh, and with regard to the church, what we're seeing in that time would have been the Christianization of Scandinavia, the Crusades, which everybody knows about, and the Great Schism. This was the split between the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox. That's the earliest that you have, the 11th century church. In the secular world, the 11th century was the time of Leif Erikson, for those who like history. The church had been established for 1,100 years by, the po- by this point that we have this text. And to put that in perspective, we're about as close to the 11th century as the 11th century was from Jesus. That's crazy to think about that, right? The Leningrad Codex is the oldest original language copy of the entire Old Testament. The oldest complete copy of an Old Testament book would be the scroll of Isaiah from Qumran, okay? And listen to me, this is fascinating to me. The scroll dates to 350 to 100 BC, that's it. That's 400 years after Isaiah was supposed to have written it. And just a couple hundred years before Christ comes on the scene. All of that's going to play a part in what I'm about to share with you. So please kind of keep these things really in your mind. So the first point of why this matters. There's a debate within the church that says God's word is valuable to him. It's inspired by him. He felt that it was useful and sufficient for us. And because of that, God will always preserve his word. But what we have to realize is that when we say preserve... We obviously don't mean preserve the original manuscripts or the autographs, which is the absolute original copy, because they don't exist. And it doesn't matter what anybody thinks or says, it's just a fact, right? They don't exist. We are interpreting the Old Testament off of something from the 11th century. And you're going to see why that's really confusing here in just a second. Things have been edited and changed through those centuries. So what does it mean that God has preserved his word? Well, if we believe in the theory that is known as verbal plenary inspiration, that the spirit whispered exact wording into the author's ears, you're going to have a massive mental breakdown, right? How do we contend with the reality of thousands of years of partial manuscripts? How do we contend with variants in those manuscripts? How do we contend with edits in those manuscripts? And how in the world, with the idea of verbal plenary inspiration, do we contend with translation? Do you know that there are not one-for-one exchanges in words from Greek to English or Hebrew to English? And if God inspired the exact word, was he just off the throne or off his rocker when he went, oh, English is coming up, crap. I don't know what's going to happen then, right? No, because verbal plenary inspiration is not what we need to understand. What we need to understand is that God's truth is preserved. God's truth is preserved. And the nitpicking and fighting over certain words gets us into a whole lot of trouble that usually just results in confirmation bias for our own positions, right? But it results in a whole lot of trouble. And all of this reality for how we got the Bible creates a serious problem for that. So let's be clear what we're dealing with here. The Bible translations we hold in our hands are a copy of a copy of a copy, okay? And no one can go back to the original autographs. They simply don't exist. Does this mean that our copies are unreliable? 
If it is a copy of a copy of a copy, how does it keep from turning into the spiritual game of, or the scriptural game, rather, of telephone? How do we know that our copy even closely resembles the original? Well, it'll help to look at some data. So let me put up a couple of charts here. The first one is this. This is a number of manuscripts for ancient works, okay? And this is the number of the manuscripts, and these are the types of manuscripts across the board, okay? Now, look at this number. This is fascinating. When it comes to the New Testament in Greek or the New Testament in all languages, we have over 28,000 manuscripts or pieces of manuscripts. Now, you go, what does that matter? What's that matter? You'll see in just a second. The next closest is Homer's Iliad. Turn it back. The next closest is Homer's Iliad, and they only have 1,900 manuscripts of Homer's Iliad. Okay? Why is it important that we have so many? So many, almost 30,000 manuscripts. Because when you compare them, they don't deviate from each other. Not in the meaning of the text. They might have things that were copied wrong in scribal errors. There might be political agendas that get forced into text. I'm going to show you one in just a second. But over time, we're able to weed that out and get back to what God intended what God actually says to his people. Isn't that cool? See, not only does God use human beings, but man, he makes them copy stuff down so much. It's like, I want you to write this sentence a thousand times on the board until you get it, right? That's what he's doing with us. And we're still stupid as rocks. Anyway, okay, so he's writing it. The next chart's really cool too. So look at this one. Flip it over. So years between date written and the earliest fragment or manuscripts. Now what's important about this is that it shows you that what we have came quickly. It came quickly. And the importance of that is less chance for error. Less chance for manipulation and change over time, right? Okay? So when we look at New Testament Greek and New Testament in all languages, we have less than 200 years between the original writing or the manuscript evidence that we have and when it took place. That's pretty powerful, okay? And when you look at all these other writings, including like Homer's Odyssey, this is 1,200 years before we have the first manuscript, before we had it first written down, between the time it was originally recorded, originally written, made up, and then when it's written down. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? So it shows that we have a lot more chance of reliability. But let's talk to this for a second on an illustration that I heard that I just absolutely love. Tim Mackey was talking. He's the guy from the Bible Project, one of the guys from the Bible Project. And he was talking about the fidelity of the Scripture, you know, and he was talking about how we know that we can trust it and how we, we know we can trust it even in the midst of a, uh, an oral tradition. And he gives this example of the story of his wife and him getting married or coming together. And he said, you know, we tell people this story a thousand times. He said, and guess what? We're not wrong about it. We didn't write it down. We didn't go back and say, oh, let's make sure it's not the game of telephone. Uh, somewhere in our wedding, there was a purple elephant that showed up. No, none of that happened because they know their own story. Okay? So this this. Uh, accusation uh, against the scripture and oral traditions that it necessarily devolves into the game of telephone is just nonsense. There's nothing that says that that would happen. You do this with stories that you believe all the time. You tell the story and it comes out clear as day because you know your story. Amen? This is really important. There's nothing wrong with this. So we have a lot of evidence for where we are. Let me take a turn here for textual criticism. Remember, the Bible you have is a copy of a copy of a copy, and it's edited through a big team that has worked really hard. Textual criticism is a, a, a skill, a science, that this team employs, and it's got very careful controls. Translators work with what they have, and as we have established, what they have is not an original manuscript. Instead, they have copies of copies of copies, and these copies don't always line up with each other. When they don't ally, uh, align, they call the difference a variant. Okay? They call the difference a variant. When translators come up against a variant, they're presented with a choice. Which copy is the correct copy? That seems 
Common sense, right? Which copy is the correct copy? And when one presents the correct idea, which one presents the correct idea? And sometimes it's an easy choice, and sometimes it's a very difficult one. The translators then look at both external and internal evidence. External evidence has to do with existing copies. External evidence has to do with how a word was used in the time period that it was from. Okay? Do you know that, have you ever gone in Google and typed a word and it shows this little graph and it says, this word has not been used since 1865 when it was popular. Right? And this graph shows it down. This, is, this happens with words all the time. And words change meaning over time. All of this stuff does. And so what they do with external evidence is they look to what a word meant, and that helps them in interpretation. So, uh, so external evidence has to do with existing words and existing copies. Internal evidence has to do with an analysis of scribal habits and tendencies. This is fascinating. They don't know the names of certain scribes, but they give them names, like say that it's like Cubert or something, right? They'll give them a name, and they know when that scribe was at work on the text because they see his fingerprints everywhere on it and what he always does, okay? Um, so they take into consideration also the original author's voice and style. What might Paul have meant, or how does Paul's other writings line up with this? Tying external and internal evidence together, translators can arrive at a high degree of certainty over variance, but they cannot ever settle on absolute certainty. Why? They weren't there, and we don't have the original, and you and I just need to be okay with it. Smile, right? It is just a reality. It is not an exact science, and why is because it deals with human variables. There were no original manuscripts before 400 B.C. Remember, there are no original manuscripts before 400 B.C. Remember the Isaiah scroll, 350 is the original one that we have. Since this is the case, understanding scribal practices requires making inferences from the translated text themselves. Have you ever gotten a text message from your mom and you're like, what the flip is she talking about? And you had to interpret it? Imagine doing that from thousands of years ago. It's really complicated. Mom, you're old, and I don't know what you're saying, right? So, not my mom. Anyway, she's mad at me too. Anyway, we know that scribes felt their job was not only translating, but also, and this is where people bristle, their job was also editing a process of preservation and revision. With this in mind, it is critical that we try to understand both the mind and the context of the original author and the earliest scribes we have. Let me put up a picture here real quick. This is a modern uh, edition of the New Testament. This is just the text in Greek that is used, right? So this is the, uh, this is the Gospel of John. And so this is a Greek text here. And this is the list of the variants in the manuscripts. Look at that. That's not somebody's commentary. That's the list of the variants inside of the text. And right here, what's really fascinating about many of these identifiers is that they know who the scribe is and what the scribe was doing and how the scribe made common errors and how the scribe edited things. They know this because they've traced it. They've tracked it. They have databases and all this stuff, and it's total dork stuff. But it's amazing, right? And so with all of that in mind, with, with all of that there... They have to put our text of Scripture back together. So we know that the scribes intended to teach people by disseminating an understandable text, just like the scribes today are doing that in English. They were not only translating manuscripts, but they were also simultaneously writing commentaries into the translation, mind you. This meant the latest manuscripts we have are actually clarifications in some cases and edits to the previous copies. Now do you understand why the 11th century being the earliest Old Testament manuscript is such a challenge? Because not only do we not have the original manuscript, we have manuscripts with edits in them. There is no such thing as the pure biblical text that you think it is. I don't know what you do with that, but I don't let that bother me. Why? Because the truth of God's word still remains. Because God's people, if God can inspire Luke to seem fitting to write down an account, God can also inspire scribes to edit and preserve the text over time. 
We don't have that view of inspiration because we think it came from spiritual downloads from heaven. We think it dropped out of the sky on gold tablets. It didn't. It didn't. And I'm going to show you some evidence for it. What I'm afraid of, though, is that I'm never going to get through all of this today. Imagine that, Steph. Anyway, so, okay, does this change the meaning of the text? Shouldn't. Shouldn't change the meaning to you at all, right? It was never viewed that way, that way by the scribes. It was understood as the text being preserved, okay? 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 16. I'm going to put this up on the screen. These are really fun things, okay? 1 Samuel 8, 16. The New King James Version and the NASB. Here's what they say. New King James. He will take your finest young men and your donkeys. The NIV and the NRSB says he will take the best of your cattle and your donkeys. Well, those are close, right? Young men and cattle. I like that, right? Uh, that's, a, that's brilliant, actually. And I know many young men that I think are more like cattle. Anyway, okay, so anyway, so, so check this out. Nobody present, of course. Anyway, so now look at what happened. Look at why this was the case. Next slide. This is why this happens. Your young men, in Hebrew, is written, these are transliterations into English or translations into English letters, B-H-W-R-Y-K-N, okay? But the translation is actually B-Q-R-Y-K-N. Y-K-N. Can you see why you would screw that up in recording it? Like, oops, missed that. And that little bit of a miss is what? The difference between cows and little boys, right? You know, you're young men. That's a pretty big deal, right? So the NRSV and the NIV, your cattle, comes from the Septuagint. It's usually the most reliable Greek translation of the Old Testament. The New King James and the NASB are following the Masoretic text, reading young men, a rather unlikely term to be used in parallel to donkeys. I think we all agree with that, right? The origin of the miscopy in the Hebrew text, which the New King James followed, is easy to understand. The expression for your young men is as you saw there, and that one little letter, that little change, is all that's, that's the difference. If you were pronouncing those words, it would be the slight difference between television and telephone. Okay, that would be how slight that, that difference is. So the error is not an oral error. The error is a scribal error. Okay, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. You guys enjoying the geekness of my day today? I hope so, because whether you like it or not, I'm going to keep going. Okay, so, so 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. New King James says this, Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The NIV says, therefore honor God with your bodies. Now the context is going to prove the NIV is right. Okay? Context is going to prove it. But here's what you need to know about the scribes translating this over time. This example is chosen to illustrate that on occasion, changes to the original text were made by the copyists for theological reasons. I told you before they edited the text, right? They surely did. The words, and in your spirit, which are God's, though found in most of the late medieval Greek manuscripts, do not appear in any early Greek evidence or in the Latin-speaking church in the West. Had they been in Paul's original letter, it is nearly impossible to explain either how or why the copyists would have left them out so early and so often, but their late appearance in Greek manuscripts can be easily explained. All such manuscripts were copied in monasteries at a time when Greek philosophy, with its low view of the human body, pre-Gnostic ideas, had made inroads into Christian theology. So some monks added, in your spirit. Huh. Agendas. It's amazing, even in the Bible. And then concluded that both body and spirit are God's. This is true. Fine. These additional words deflect Paul's obvious concern with the body in this passage and are thus no part of the Spirit's inspiration of the Apostle. Isn't that curious? So you're going, I have an English translation and mine's right and every Christian in the world's griping and complaining and fighting over it. It's the King James only and it's the NIV and that's a heresy Bible and blah, blah, blah and all this other stuff. And it's funny. It's like watching two people talk about who's the better quarterback sitting on the couch. You are armchair quarterbacks that don't know what the flip you're talking about, right? And so the problem is, there's a lot more going on here. My text is better. Hmm. Okay, good for you. Good for you. 
But this is the complexity of interpretation. This is the complexity of translation. So third takeaway, translation is a complicated art form. God working through the original authors, through scribes, through editors, and translators still preserves his word for us. The human element in all of this shouldn't worry anyone. Really important, guys. Really important. Okay, I'm going to try to make a mad dash through canon and wrap this up today. So, we want to talk about the canon, how we got the 66 books that are our uh, Bible. Um, canon being those texts which are regarded as divinely inspired and authorized for use in the believing community. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there are three components known together as the Tanakh. Can you say that with me? The Tanakh. The Tanakh is comprised of the Torah, say Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. Okay? The Torah is the first five books of Moses, also known as the law. The Nevi'im is the prophets. And the Ketuvim is the writings, the collections of poetic books and historical books that are given uh, afterwards. This tripart division was recognized at least as far back as the first century AD. We know this because Jesus, risen uh, as he was at this time, instructed his disciples that everything written about him was from what? The Law, the Prophets, and Psalms, which happens to be the first book of the last section, right? So Jesus is actually saying something, but we're not, we're not able to hear it, okay? You guys remember in the Paul Women and Wives series, I said that there are things that go without being said, right? Well, in Jesus' day, this was one thing that went, out, went without being said. The disciples knew that when Jesus was saying... Uh, they talk about me in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. He was literally saying, everything that has been written, me, written about me in the Tanakh. Everything that has been written about me has been written in the Tanakh. Everything. And they knew it. And we're all going, where is this at in Moses? Where is this exactly at in the prophets? Where is this at in the Psalms? And his point was, all the Old Testament points to me. That's his point. But what we do is we obsess with literalism and we don't know what we're talking about. And when we read it, we read all kinds of weird baggage into our interpretations. Scribes don't do it. Scribes don't do that. They're going to look at that and say, hold on, we know the culture. So wait a second. Separated by 2,000 years, it isn't something that goes without being said for us. We need more information in order to understand it. When we talk about the law, we are talking about the first five books of the Bible. The books of Moses as they are called. The interesting thing about the book of Moses is that it couldn't have been completely written by Moses. Nor was it written in addition by Joshua. And I'm going to prove it just from the Bible. Why does this matter? Well, it means that once again we see the idea of a team effort in writing scripture. Michael Bird says this. He says, what this means is that the law is the product of an oral tradition, a mixture of cultural memory and folklore among the Hebrews that was eventually committed to writing. Now, I know what some of you are doing. You're going, folklore, time out, Nathan, pause. Well, get out a dictionary. You'll be good, right? Folklore can mean popular myths. The primary meaning of, of folklore is not mythical. It is a traditional belief, custom, or story of a community passed down through generations by word of mouth. Did you know that all the Bible is folklore then? It's a truth passed down by word of mouth to multiple generations. It's a, as C.S. Lewis would call it, true myth. Isn't that amazing? Okay, so we have to see this. Consider this quote when we think of who wrote the books of Moses. Um, a, formation, a formative role in, com in composition is attributed to Moses. Then there was a period of transmission and growth and editing of the traditions and texts that was probably completed by a priestly group associated with Ezra just after the return of the exile that was said by Michael Byrd. Remember, when we're talking about the team effort or editing process, we're seeing it here. This is exactly what it looks like. The post-exile scribes and priests adopted the language of their day to disseminate divine message, the divine message, more clearly. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 34. It's the final chapter of Deuteronomy. 
And I want to start reading at verse 9, and I want to prove to you that the first five books of the Bible can't have been written by Moses. Deuteronomy 34, verse 9. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. I'll get back to that. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants in all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of Israel. Now if we go back just a little bit, it says in verse 5, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. Okay, do you know anybody who wrote when they're dead? Yes. It says he died. He didn't pre-record his death. He died, right? Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he was buried in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eyes were not dim, nor his vigor abated. So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. And what happens in verse 9? Joshua picks up. And Joshua, the son of Nun, filled with the spirit of wisdom, told the story of Moses. Clearly Moses is dead. He can't have written all five books of the the, Old Test- the first five books of the Old Testament. Not only that, when it says, since that time, Moses' time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, it would not make sense for Joshua to say, since the time of that guy dying two days ago, no prophet has risen. It is generations down that scribes are writing back in and saying, scribes that are inspired are writing back in and saying, to this day, nobody like Moses has ever come. To this day, it's never happened. Isn't that amazing? There are people, church, that will fight you to the death over this little fact. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. If you don't believe that, you don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And if you don't believe that, you don't believe in Jesus. And blah, 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 blah. And the dominoes fall. My hope is in Jesus, not in your view of Moses, right? This is just absurd. And all it takes is textual criticism. All it takes is just read the daggone Bible. It's not that hard, right? So, editing process. Here's an example of it. Moving to the prophets, we learn that from the 8th century B.C. on, people started to collect and edit the work of certain prophets for the benefit of subsequent generations. Didn't happen before then. Isn't that fascinating? They did this often, adding historical mirror, uh, uh, material for context. Again, Jeremiah 1.1, Deuteronomy 34.10. We're seeing it over and over. When we think of who wrote the prophetic literature, we need to picture a large team of people, prophets, scribes, historians, editors, spread across various stages of Israel's history, all inspired by God. Not a problem. Not a problem at all. Because the text is still true. And the text still comes to us. Lastly, let's consider what is known as the writings. The writings are composed of a few different genres. One, wisdom literature, which includes Job and the Psalms and Proverbs. The scrolls called Mejulet, or uh, which is comprised of the Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. And three, the histories, including Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel. And most of us would put Daniel in the prophets, and it's not there, right? You might be surprised to know that no council ever officially declared the books of the Old Testament as we know them to be a canon. Did you know that? There was no, there was no council of Nicaea for the Old Testament. Never happened. Uh, though the canon is a set of texts regarded as divinely inspired and authorized for use in the believing community, the Jewish believing community up to and through Christ didn't necessarily regard the canon to even be closed. Listen to what Mike Michael Bird says, the entire Tanakh Old Testament, except for Esther, appears in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which can be safely dated to prior to A.D. 70. Qumran sectarians who copied and housed the scrolls also felt free, right within the text, to compose their own writings in the form of community rules, biblical commentaries, and apocalyptic works, which are also afforded authoritative status. 
The Qumran scrolls are evidence for the emerging consensus about the books of the Tanakh and Old Testament that they also suggest that the Jewish canon was far from closed. The Greek word canon, the Latin word kana, signify a measuring rod, which means to mark out what is exact or what is right. So let's close our section on canon with two final quotes. One on the idea of canonization and one on the canonization of the New Testament. In regard to the idea of canonization, Bird says, Whereas scripture is an authoritative and sacred book, a canon is a sacred and authoritative list of books. Let me add that it is important to remember that a canon does not make the book authoritative. Rather, it informally recognizes, or it formally recognizes, that uh, what was informally intuited by the believing community. That a given book is authoritative because it is perceived to have been given by God and delivered through a human agent. So don't fall for the idea that because it's in the canon, it's good. It's because it is good, because it is inspired, that it ever got into the canon. How many of you know Constantine didn't create the canon of Scripture? These are, these are common myths. These are nonsense ideas that have been debunked a thousand ways to Sunday. So when we start to talk to skeptics, what are we going to have to do? We're going to have to say, hey, you want to go to school? Want to go to school? Because the books we have in our Bible are not some group of uh, white-robed authorities sitting up somewhere saying, this is good, this is bad, this is good, this is bad. It was a list of books compiled because the church trusted them already. Amen? There's a big difference in that, and if you don't see it, just say it a couple of times, you'll get it. About canonization of the New Testament. Bird says the consolidation of the New Testament canon was a gradual process as the churches came to agree on a definitive list of Christian writings. No one was walking around with an inspirationometer collecting books that measured a high reading. That's in my list now with the faithometer, right? The second century church held the Jewish scriptures usually the Septuagint, the words of Jesus, whether in oral tradition, in the Gospels, or even in other writings, and apostolic instructions, especially Peter, Paul, and John, in high regard. By the mid-2nd century, the four Gospels and the Pauline letter collection were widely used and highly regarded. These are the primary writings that were used by the apostolic fathers and early Christian apologists, even if other writings were utilized by Christian Christians. So your final takeaway is this, like inspiration, canonization wasn't a paranormal event. It's simply a list of scripture regarded by the believing community as divinely inspired, as a measuring rod by which to live. Amen? So, spiritual matters on inspiration that we're going to talk about next week. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17 says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. All I want you to know, and I'll talk to you more about this next week, all I want you to know is that what the, the spiritual side of inspiration is what the text of Scripture was intended to produce in you. That's the spiritual side of it. There's no magic period in the Bible. There's no special heavenly words in the Bible. None, none of that, right? There are human words that God inspired, but... The inspiration of those things come when they affect change inside of our lives. And you're going to see this in a very, very big way next week. So we're going to take next week part, part two, and we're going to talk about uh, inspiration in an in-depth manner. So let me close this way, and our communion teams can come on up. Let me close this way by saying, as you are engaging with skeptics in the church and skeptics in the culture, it is important that you know what you're talking about. It's important that you know what you're talking about. If you don't know what you're talking about, here's what I can tell you. Rest assured, the skeptic is going to chew you up and spit you out. And they're going to give evidence to show why you seem to be a person who believes in fairy tales. But you don't have to fall for that. Why? Because there's truth backing us up. There is evidence, there is reality backing up how we even got to where we are. 
And it's going to set the stage for a lot of different things. So I hope, you'll, I hope you'll engage with what I'm sharing with you in a way to talk to skeptical people, including a generation of people, whether we like it or not, church, that are leaving the church. It's fitting, though, that as we do this, we have an influx of little kids. And I hope that visual will stir you as we get ready for communion to to think about how much you need to learn and grow so that you can invest in these lives. One hour on Sunday is not going to do it. A little small Bible study that maybe you do at home might not be enough. There is a lot required in explaining the truth to your kids. So I encourage you, engage with them, yes? Engage with them, church, yes? It's really, really important.